Good morning. How was everyone? How was your week? It's good to be here. How was your week? Can I share with you a little bit about my week? It has absolutely nothing to do with this morning. It has absolutely nothing to do with the content of what we're going to talk about. I just want to share it with you. I started a new job about three weeks ago. So this past week was my third week at my new facility. Two weeks prior, I'd been in training at another facility. I'm the food service director of a healthcare facility slash nursing home type environment. So Tuesday, I'm out in the dining area and I'm talking to some residents and this lady introduces herself to me and we dialogue for a moment. This lady's a little bit different. See, a lot of these residents, they're a little maybe lethargic, a little lifeless. This lady was completely different. She had that spark in her eye. I could see it just from the way that she was looking at me. So later that evening, I'm leaving work, and I see her in the hall in her wheelchair. She's probably mid-60s. And she says, Moon, I heard that you're a chef. And me, of course, not wanting her to think less of the quality of our food, I didn't see the need to argue with her about that. So I said, well, sweetie, why do you ask? And she said, I just want you to know the food here is horrible. <laughs> And I said, okay, well, how long has the food been bad? And she said, well, it's been bad about a week. And I said, well, I've only been here two days. She said, it's been bad about two days. So that was my introduction to the new work environment. It didn't get much better than that. I was leaving Friday. I exit out through the dining room. There's a gentleman eating food. Now, I had made veal parmesan, and I made the marinara from scratch, and I'm thinking pretty highly about it. Okay, because we didn't have any canned marinara. It was diced tomatoes, and I thought, okay, this is going to be really good. See a gentleman out there eating, and I'm thinking, okay, here comes a compliment. Sir, how was your meal? How's your chicken or your veal parmesan? His exact words. I can't eat this hunky stuff. Listen, I don't know what hunky means, okay? I'm hoping that it was a some type of compliment in an angry tone. But anyway, nonetheless... I just want to say that it is so good to be here with you this morning and to be brought back into a certain reality. We've covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. We've talked about God, His attributes, His purpose before the foundation of the world, His creation. We've talked about the fall. And we've talked about, starting last week, how God has seen fit to respond to man's fall through what we're calling redemption. Now, as individuals that compose the local church, specifically Providence Bible Church, it's very important, I believe, that we determine what it is that is of first importance to us. And what is of first importance is usually determined, obviously, based upon the value that we put on something. And I don't know about you, but there are times that I find myself struggling with a right perspective on what really is most valuable. There are times that I find myself misplacing and misappropriating value because I can find myself a little bit disoriented as to what true success is or to where true happiness really stems from. But the biblical suggestion as to what is of first important importance 
seems to come to us and seems to be presented to us as a no-brainer because of the value that is placed upon the gospel as of first importance. The gospel of God through the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ seems to be presented to us as the foundation upon which we stand, the foundation upon which we build, The gospel seems to be presented to us as the banner over us that encourages us. The gospel enlightens us. The gospel challenges us. The gospel convicts us. The gospel empowers us in our fight against sin. And the reason that the gospel has such varying and edifying qualities is because it highlights a grace, an amazing grace that was freely given to us by a God who simply and solely chooses to love us and set His love on whoever He chooses. And all of that takes place completely outside of our humanity and outside of any type of human effort. And beloved, when grace was extended to you, I assure you it was done without any type of shortage. As a matter of fact, when the Apostle Paul was encouraging the Corinthian church in relation to their current or their present day struggles with sin, the way that he encouraged them was to call them to reflect back on the gospel. He didn't say, hey, you need to hang in there and do a little bit better. That probably would have been very counterproductive. But he encourages them to look back to the grace that accompanied the gospel that saved them. And he said it this way, brothers, I want to remind you as of first importance the gospel I preach to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. 1 Corinthians 1.15 What was Paul's plan of action to the bewitched Galatians who were kind of beginning to lean more toward a works-oriented salvation? His plan of action was to remind them of the grace that accompanied their salvation according to Galatians 3.15. What did Paul associate with godly living regarding the Philippian church? His suggestion was that godly living was a reflection of the church's grasp on the gospel according to Philippians 1.27. In every epistle, it seems as if Paul is using very explicit language to point to the realism and the priority of the gospel. Listen. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' birth, life, teaching, death, resurrection and ascension and all that means as it is applied to our lives. It's as if Paul is pointing to the priority of of the gospel as the motive for Christian conduct, the motive for Christian thinking, and beloved, the motive for Christian worship as we gather in settings like this. And I want to assure you, we're not talking about any type of gospel. We are talking about the gospel, the gospel of grace that God extends to all men based on no merit of their own whatsoever, but based solely on God's love and God's intention as He sets His love on whomever He chooses as His sovereign choice. 
And that is the gospel that I am suggesting that we guard this morning as of first importance. How do we do that? Well, I believe we begin to do that by fighting the temptation that man is the center of reference as relates to the gospel. Now, we can make man the center of reference as relates to the gospel in two ways. One way is to think way too highly of his abilities and less highly of grace. And we think too highly of man's abilities by thinking that that man in a lost condition can choose God. But there is another way that we make man the center of reference. And we do that by suggesting that the primary purpose of salvation is that salvation would be helpful to us. That salvation is designed to make us comfortable. That salvation is designed to bring us peace. Now let me assure you, beloved, that that is indeed an overflow of the gospel, but it is not the primary purpose of the gospel. That's why this morning we talk about the gospel in the context of unconditional election, which brings about three truths. Did I do three truths? Three truths. (laughs) Brings about three truths. One, God is the center of reference and not man. God is the center of reference and not man. And I'm not suggesting that this is an outline this morning, but I'm going to hit on some of this. Secondly, God is able to do in man what a man can't do of himself in relation to being born again. And three, the primary purpose of salvation is God's glory and not man's satisfaction. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we are so grateful, God, to be here. We're taken aback by grace as we gather together as sons and daughters of God. And Lord, it doesn't take very long for us to peer into our own hearts to determine that we are sons and daughters for one reason and one reason alone. You are sovereign over our salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God, it's yours to give. So we look at ourselves and we wonder, why, God, would you love us? Well, we know the answer to that. We know that, God, you choose to love us simply as a measure of grace. Simply according to your purpose. Simply according to the purpose of your will. There's no theological answer to expound on other than God. It is your good pleasure. And so we celebrate that this morning. Thank you for grace. I pray that we would see it. That we would experience it that we would be encouraged by it this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you a definition of unconditional election. And it's this. Unconditional election is an act of God before the foundation of the world. Now let's stop there a moment. It's real important that we note that this is an act of God before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4-6 says, 
even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now let's go back, because that's important, because that hits all of the things that I've previously said. God is the center of reference, not man. He chose us. He predestined us. God is able to do in man what man can't do of himself. He predestined us for adoption. A man cannot choose to be adopted. A man must choose to adopt someone. We can't choose to be sons and daughters of God. God must choose to adopt us as such. And the primary purpose of salvation is God's glory, not man's satisfaction. He did this according to Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. If you want to know why you're born again, that sums it up. If you want a motivation for evangelism, here it is. Why should I go out and evangelize? Because God has determined before the foundations of the world that He has called some by His glorious grace and you are guaranteed to be successful when you share the gospel because God Himself is the one at work. Now let's go back and put a definition. Unconditional election. An act of God before the foundation of the world in which He chooses some people to be saved. Not on account of any unforeseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. I know your contention with, this, with what I just said as a definition. Your problem with what I just said is, I said He chooses some people to be saved and you're wanting to know why He hasn't chosen all. Well, hopefully we'll add a little bit of meat to that a little bit later. But I want you to note the conversation among us cannot be whether or not God elects. Scripture is peppered very heavily with the reality that God is electing and that God is choosing. We can go back to Deuteronomy 7 and look how God chose His people, for example, in verses 6-8. through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to His fathers. We cannot have a conversation of whether or not God elects. Yes, God elects. Of course God elects. The question is, how does God's election process work? That's what we have to determine. That's where we have to make peace. And we have to know that God's election process, it takes place one of two ways. God's election process is either based 
upon the foreknowledge that God has of individuals who will one day believe and respond by faith, or God's election process takes place simply and solely because God is sovereign and God has made a sovereign choice to save some sinners solely by grace, solely because of His sovereign choice. Now, I want to suggest, if election is based upon God's foreknowledge of what a man will do, then the man himself is the center of reference and he has a reason to boast within himself. Whereas, if election is God's sovereign choice to set His love on whomever He chooses to love, then God Himself is the center of reference and salvation is all of grace and man can boast in the salvation that has been given to him as a free gift from God. You see, the center of reference or the central personality of our salvation is ultimately determined and based upon who does what, who can accomplish what. Reality is this. You're at a ball game. You're sitting next to a man or woman. You're a believer. They're not. We have to understand or should want to know why. There has to be an explanation as to why you're a believer and the person sitting next to you is not. And the answer is one of the two that I just described. Either there was something good within you that caused you to make a decision that this person couldn't make, therefore your boast is in yourself, The other option and the only other option is that you were saved simply and solely because God chose to set His love on you by extending a vast amount of grace to you and draw you unto Himself. I pray that I would never say to a man in an evangelistic effort, look at what I've done. Look at how I responded to God. Look at what I did and be saved. I pray that would never happen. But... Let's look at what a man can't do for himself. About two weeks ago, Andrew talked to us about total depravity. What we believe about total depravity determines what we believe about the whole of salvation. It determines what we believe about the idea of unconditional election. So let's talk specifically about what a man cannot do of himself. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 2. We're going to look at just a couple of different passages today. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says, Now after I read verses 2 through 3, I'll go back in a moment and we'll expand on that a little bit. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now, we know that's not a literal death because this person is dead and at the same time very active. This person is physically alive, spiritually dead, being about the business of spiritually dead men. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, let's read on, starting in verse 4 through 9, and let's talk about what God can do in light of what man can't do. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, why? Because we were good enough? Because we had something in us? Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Colossians 2.13 also states, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. Paul uses the word dead as descriptive of pre-converted humanity. The word dead is derivative of a Greek word, nekros, and this is its definition. It means a corpse, a dead body, what lacks life, not able to respond to impulses or to perform functions, unresponsive to life-giving influences, inoperative to the things of God, and destitute of a life that recognizes God. Several years ago, <clears throat> Jason and I went to the Philippines together and we ministered with a native pastor friend of ours, Pedro Balsita. And it's really interesting how they do church there because you gather together on a Sunday morning corporately and then throughout the rest of the week, he just makes his way out to the people and they have little church services in homes. We're going to visit a family, and we pass this lady's house. She's outside. There's some people gathered around her. One look at her, it was obvious that she was in terrible pain and grief. We stopped to talk to her, went into her house, and we realized that just a day or so prior, her husband, who was a fisherman, he had been out on the South China Sea, storm had moved in quickly, tossed him from the boat, and he had drowned. We walk into her home, and he is in a casket in her living room, in a white casket with one piece of glass, and the only thing that you can see as you look down upon this glass is his face. And it's customary there that, according to her, that he would stay in that home for about seven days, in that casket, with her, at night. Alone. It's a little spooky. Listen, we've all stood in the dreaded viewing line 
as we've paid respect to family and friends, and we've observed the corpse of a person. We've observed the lifeless shell that once held someone very dear to us, or at least a vague acquaintance. What do you think would happen if I would have stood, or Jason would have said to this dead person in this lady's house, or try it sometime, how do you think someone would someone would respond if while you're viewing a dead body, you say to that dead body, rise up. How do you think people would respond to you? What do you think they would say? Do you think they would think that you're crazy? Sure they would. Why? Why would they think you're crazy? Because dead people can't respond. Dead people can't comprehend Dead people can't obey. Dead people cannot receive any type of instruction. So really, what is the expectation when Jesus makes an appearance at Lazarus' tomb and cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth? What really is the expectation there? And I want to suggest this morning that Lazarus being dead in a tomb is an analogy of the deadness of sin and the power of the gospel to raise dead men from life. So what really is the expectation? Is the expectation that Lazarus himself, the rotting corpse, would within himself cause his own cells to come back to life and begin to form or reform? Is the expectation that Lazarus would within himself cause his own dead heart to begin beating? And even if he could, he's going to be beating dead blood through his veins. Is the expectation really that Lazarus would start the reversal process of death that has plagued him for several days now to the point that his flesh is starting to stink? Or did Jesus just make an appearance there because in his foreknowledge he knew that one day Lazarus was going to raise himself from the dead anyway and Jesus just wanted to show up and stamp his approval upon this action? Is that really what's going on? Did he call Lazarus to come forth because his foreknowledge assured him Lazarus is going to raise himself from the dead? If that's the case, the center of reference in that incident was Lazarus. And it is void of any type of grace whatsoever. We all know what the expectation is. We know that if Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead, Christ has to be the one to raise him from the dead. And if Christ does not raise him from the dead, Lazarus will not be raised from the dead, and Lazarus will continue to be a dead man. That makes Christ the center of reference for Lazarus or any of us to pass from life, excuse me, from death into life. Christ is the center of reference. That, beloved, is the gospel that we guard. We guard the gospel that says God is in control, God is sovereign over all of salvation, and we do that through the doctrine of unconditional election. Romans 8, 7 says the sinful mind, and when we talk about the sinful mind, we're talking about the carnal mind, a mind of the flesh, a mind that the unregenerated man has. Paul said the sinful mind is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Romans 3, 10-12 assures us 
None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Why can't the mind submit to God's law? Because Adam's sin has imposed upon us a condition. And that condition means that our minds are dead and incapable of thinking spiritually. Why doesn't the will seek after God? Because Adam's sin has imposed a condition upon us, upon our conception, and the will is dead to the things of God and can seek nothing outside of its own self. That is the condition man is in, and that's the condition that God commands that man to come and to be born again. Let me assure you, the gospel calls a command. It's not an option among options. It's a command to come and to be born again. And we can speak in our evangelism efforts with great certainty, with great authority, and with great surety. God is commanding you to be born again. Believe, repent, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. God commands dead men to be born again. God commands dead men to follow Him. God commands dead men to repent of their ways and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But the only way that a dead man can do so is if life is given to him through the person of Christ. What's that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that salvation is certain. God put together history. It includes redemption. Unconditional election assures us that redemptive history is a certain history. Because the gospel is good news. And without unconditional election, the gospel is downgraded from good news to possible good news or hopeful good news. Unconditional election, the fact that God is saving men in spite of their sin condition, in spite of the fact that they are dead in their sins and their trespasses, that's the reason that Jesus could stand on a solid foundation when the disciples saw the rich young ruler walk away sad Jesus said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. The disciples say, well, who in the world then can be saved? And it's on the foundation of unconditional election that Jesus can say, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Unconditional election is the reason that Christ can say with a great amount of certainty, I will build my church. Unconditional election is the good and certain news that swallows up the bad news. Unconditional election is the comfort and the certain hope that we have that God is saving men. That Christ is building His church. That God is moving in missions. It is the certainty that God's history is redemptive. It's the certainty that people are are being redeemed for God by Christ's blood from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation because of what God is most powerful to do in spite of what man cannot do on his own because God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. And I want to begin a closing thought with this idea. The primary motive of all of this is God's glory and not man's satisfaction. 
The primary motive for all of this is God's glory. As we see him set his affection on who he chooses to set his affection solely by grace. If you would, turn to Romans 9 with me, please. Romans chapter 9, for just a brief moment. And we're going to read verses 6 through 13. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, now, verse 11 is where I want us to pay specific attention. And I know that we could say, okay, well, this is a national election. And that may be true. But this is the election process that God uses when he calls. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, But because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I want you to pay close attention to verse 11 specifically, the beginning of verse 11, because it is a very clear picture of unconditional election. How? Well, it tells us that neither son was chosen due to anything that they had done good or bad, or anything that they had done right or wrong. The election or the choosing of Jacob over Esau was unconditional. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God looked ahead in time and saw that Jacob was going to do this good thing and respond to God. Therefore, God stamped his approval over Jacob's life and elected him. That would be a contradiction of Scripture because that would mean that Jacob did a very good thing. And it says before they did anything good or bad, God made this decision. You see, God doesn't seem to exercise foreknowledge based upon who would choose him. It seems as if what we've learned so far, God uses His foreknowledge for the purpose of determining that we would not choose Him. It seems as if He chose us so that the sole purpose, for the sole purpose of His election continuing. That's why Horatius Bonar said, election precedes, proceeds, not upon foreseen faith in us, but upon foreseen unbelief. What's the purpose of God's foreknowledge? To know that we're not going to choose Him. We need a Savior. The latter part of verse 11 tells us the exact purpose of unconditional election. Paul said, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. 2 Timothy 1.9 He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, 
but according to His own, that word again, purposes and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus when? Before time began. Ephesians 1, 4 and 6. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to, there's that word again, according to the purpose of His will, which is to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Romans 8.28 speaks about those who are called according to His purpose. The Greek word purpose is from a Greek word prothesis, and it means providence. I love the name Providence Bible Church, by the way. Love it more today than I did uh, before I realized what the Greek definition of the word was. Anyway, it means providence. It means a setting forth in advance for a specific purpose. Why does God unconditionally elect? Because it seems good to Him to do so for His good purpose and the pleasure of His will to the praise of His glorious grace as He determines to glorify Himself through the people that He would choose, period. That's why, that's why God unconditionally elects. Let's talk about that very briefly. What type of people are we talking about that brings them glory? 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I know that we want to say, that's not fair. Let me assure you of something, beloved. We don't want fair. We, we really don't want fair. We want and we need grace. And if you're thinking that God is unfair, let me share with you an experience that Mark Webb had. After speaking on the doctrine of election, afterwards he opened up the meeting for discussion and a woman approached him. She seemed extremely troubled. And she said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved receiving only the elect. And I answered her in this vein. You must understand the situation. You are visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get into the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you and you and not you. Then he states, the situation is hardly this. Rather, all men without exception are running in the opposite direction toward hell as hard as they can possibly go. So God in election graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over here and that one over there and effectually draws them to Himself by changing their hearts. 
in making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams, Mark Webb goes on to say. That kind of response, grounded as it is in scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? And then he makes this statement, I think originated from Jonathan Edwards. If you perish in hell, blame yourself, as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God, for it is entirely his work. And to him alone belongs all praise and glory for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. I want to close with this idea. Unconditional election is the greatest news on planet Earth. I have a relationship with a young man who has been involved in drugs for a long time. And he knows my stance on this doctrinal issue, and he would say, I feel like I'm elect. Maybe with a little bit of concern, a little confusion, I'm not sure, but he would say, I don't feel like I'm elect. I don't have desire. I've done terrible things. I'm doing terrible things. I don't know what this means, and I can say with certainty, with boldness, with assurance, this reality. See, if God doesn't choose people because of the good they do, then He doesn't not choose people because of the bad that they do. And we can look at people regardless of their sin condition and we can say, you are not so sinful that the grace of God cannot reach down in the depths of your heart where you are right now and draw you to himself because his grace is more powerful than your sin. You are right. You cannot. You don't have the desire. You don't want the desire. You run from God in rebellion every chance you get. But God is more powerful than your dead state and he can bring your dead self back to life. And if we're here, beloved, and we're born again, it is because God spoke to the dead man of our spiritual being and He called us to life and we had no other option but to say, yes. Beloved, that is the good news of the Gospel that we have to fight to guard and keep as of first importance. By your heads with me, please, if you will. Let's pray. God, we're grateful to be here. And we're grateful to be here in the context of the redeemed. We're thankful, Father, for grace. So God, today we come to you with certainty. And we reflect on the gospel and we know that, God, you are sovereign and you are in control. We can go to this world that's fallen and dead. We can walk into the graveyard with confidence. 
that you have the power through the gospel to bring dead men to life. God, give us a passion for dead men. Lord, we were dead ourselves at one time, Father. I pray that we would never forget the stench that once defined and surrounded us. Bring back to mind, Father, our dead state, God. Give us a passion and a desire to share the gospel with this world. And Lord, we can go forward and we can know that, God, you are building your church. You are saving people. God, you are about your business. You are at work. You are not a God who is far off and in the distance. You are a God who is present and working in our midst, Lord. And I pray this morning that, Lord God, by your grace, amazing grace, you would plant that seed of the reality of redemption in the heart of anyone that may be here that is not born again. We're not begging people to come. We're asking and pleading that God, through the power and the strength of the gospel, you would draw them. The gospel that they have to hear, the gospel that we're responsible for sharing, the teaching and preaching, give us a passion for that message. May we too, as the Apostle Paul, be servants of the gospel, the power by which men are saved, and without it no man will be saved. May we be stewards and servants of the gospel for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. God help us. We thank you.